Good morning, Gateway family. It's so good to see you this morning. And um, to those of you that are watching via live stream, we want to welcome you also. It's glad to have you with us. We know that uh, there's a lot of sickness going on. There's a lot of traveling and people being with family. It's that time of year. We recognize that. But we're glad to have you there. We're glad to have you here. And we rejoice that we can be together this morning. Um, a couple of things I just want to mention to you. First of all, um, you may or may not know that uh, Matthias and Chrysia had a little baby boy, Bennett, um, just a, about a week or so ago. And so they're celebrating a new birth at this Christmas season. And I'm sure they're enjoying uh, the little guy. Um, and then secondly, um, on behalf of uh, myself and my wife and Dennis and Anna, um, we want to thank you for your gracious kindness and your love gift. I have no idea how much it is. That's not the point. The point is we are privileged to be in a church where um, we have such a good relationship with pastor and congregation. Um, I am, you know, we started this church you know, 11 years ago, and this has been a wonderful, wonderful ride. And we have partnered together with joy. And it's been such a blessing. And we just want to say thank you. Thank you for being a wonderful church family. Thank you for all that you do to encourage us. Thank you for keeping me focused on the things that are most important. And that's the ministry of the word. And um, I just want to say thank you to you for all that you do and, and your, your, your showering of love toward us, both myself and my wife and Dennis and Anna. Well, this morning I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 2, Titus chapter 2, and Lauren Bassard is going to come and she's going to read for us, and we're going to read the whole chapter, verses 1 all the way through verse 15. So Lauren, why don't you come and read for us? Let's stand together as we read Titus chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. With sound doctrine, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything, they are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of, our, of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. 
Lord, we come to you this morning on this Christmas day, mindful of the fact that the world, although many are celebrating this day, really have no clue what it means. But also, Lord, mindful that it's easy for us, even as your children, to drift and to sensationalize this time rather than focus on who you really are and what you truly have done for us. So this morning, Lord, we ask that you would teach us, that you would shape us, that you would mold us by your Holy Spirit through his word to be more and more like Jesus Christ and conformed to the will of God and that you would allow me as your messenger to simply proclaim your truth. We ask this now in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. My aim this morning is threefold. This is a Christmas sermon, and Christmas sermons are always the hardest to preach and to come up with because there's only so many texts. And so my aim this morning is to refresh your memory. It is also to rekindle your walk. And it's also to reorient your worship. Those are three worthy objectives. Now, friends, nowhere in Scripture are we commanded to celebrate Christmas. But nowhere in Scripture are we condemned for celebrating, but quite honestly, it is quite natural for us who are followers of Christ to want to celebrate the incarnation of the Son of God, because it recalls the great events that God has accomplished in history past to bring about our salvation. And the Christmas story is not a myth. It's not some fable conjured up by individuals that's been passed down through time. No, the Christmas story is rooted in historical fact. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, a real place. He was born or laid in a stable, in a manger. And he had particular people witnessing all of this. Real place, real time, real people. And today, as we celebrate Christmas, we need to understand that it is far more than a baby in the manger. Because it's part of a greater story of God's redemption of sinful man. That story runs through the birth of Christ, but it continues on as Jesus grows up as he shows up in the synagogue as a 12-year-old, as he enters into ministry, as he encounters the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, as he suffers, as he dies, and ultimately as he rises from the tomb and he ascends to heaven and he is now seated at the right hand of the Father. It's a part of this wonderful story. But we shouldn't just see Christmas as a past event alone, but as part of the act 
of grace that now enables us to live in this present age. It is truly, my friends, the grace of Christmas that gives us fuel to live our lives for his glory. Let me draw your attention to our text. It begins at verse 11, and it begins with the word for. Paul's typical pattern in his letters is to lead with theology and doctrine, and then out of that teaching, seek to apply the things that he wants us to do. In other words, theology and doctrine are what we call the indicatives And those indicatives drive the commands, the applications, and the instructions. Those would be the imperatives. So Paul's natural pattern is indicatives first and then imperatives. You see that in all his letters, but not here. In fact, here we have the opposite going on. He begins with the imperatives, but now in verse 11, with this verse, this word for, he transitions to the indicatives. And if you look in our text, just briefly notice here, the imperatives declare this is how older men should live. This is how older women should live. This is how younger women should live. This is how younger men should live. This is how bond servants should live. And then the indicatives reveal how and why such godly living can take place. Now, we often take Titus 11 through 14 as a standalone text. We know this passage. We turn to this passage. We love this passage. But it is a text that emphasizes that we can live out godly lives by God's grace. Or to say it a little differently, it is the grace of God that fuels our Christian living. So today, We want to see that Paul is giving every person a call to live out of God's grace at Christmas. In our passage, we have two appearances. We have the first appearance where Jesus comes to the earth, and then we have another appearance that comes Later, he will appear. He'll come for his second coming. And in our passage, we also have this present age. Paul is setting something up here to help us to seek to know how we are to live by framing that discussion and rooting it in the grace of God. The grace of God has appeared, we're told. The grace of God will appear, we're told. And in light of those two appearances, we are called to live our lives for his glory. So Paul is saying what grace has done in the past and what grace will do in the future should move us to live our lives by grace in this present age. Now, friends, hear this. So many times we think of Christmas as simply something that happened in the past and it's kind of a standalone thing, but that's not what Paul is saying here. Now, friends, what is it that fuels you to live your life on this Christmas day? Is it money? Is it popularity? Is it fear? Is it pleasing men? 
Is it trying to fill the void of your emptiness and your loneliness and your discouragement? What's driving you? Friends, what we, when we come to Jesus by faith in what he has done for us on the cross, we are the recipients of his grace. We've sung about that today. Now, grace, biblically speaking, really is understood in two ways. First of all, grace is an attribute of God. You might want to say it's an attitude of God. It is his unmerited favor. It means that God has showered his favor and blessing on those who did not in any way deserve it. We deserve the judgment of God's wrath, but instead he showers us with his favor. That is an attribute and an attitude of God. But secondly, I want you to notice that grace is a person. It is Christ. What are we told here? Grace has appeared. Well, who has appeared? Christ has appeared. He is grace. He is the embodiment of grace. And grace will appear again in great glory. This is all Christ. And so it is with and through Christ and his favor that we can live our lives for his glory. Now, you all know, I'm sure, the Charles Dickens story, The Christmas Carol, where Ebenezer Scrooge is visited by three ghosts. You guys remember that story? You probably watched it this weekend. And he, he talks about the visiting of the ghost of Christmas past, the ghost of Christmas present, and the ghost of Christmas future. And when he encounters those three ghosts, he is motivated and moved to change his life. As we come to our text today in a similar design, we're going to see the grace of Christmas past, the grace of Christmas future that is going to fuel how we live our lives in the present. Let's notice, first of all, the grace of Christmas past. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And notice verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. These are all things that Jesus has done in the past as it relates to his salvation. How then does grace appear? Well, the key word here is humility, and I want to encourage you to listen to the sermon from last week as Dennis unpacked Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 in particular, just talking about the humility of Christ. But friends, this is not how the Jews expected the Messiah to come. They expected him to come as a mighty political king leading a great army to overthrow the enemies and to establish a kingdom over the whole world. Yet that is not how the Messiah came, is it? No, he comes in great humility. 
And that is what Charles Wesley is saying in his famous Christmas carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And one of the things that the angels sing is this, mild he lays his glory by. He is glory, but he comes to earth and he mildly lays his glory by. He willfully set aside the privileges of heaven to come to earth, taking for himself the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of man. And Wesley helps us tremendously when he continues in that song and he says, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased with us in flesh to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. You see, he came incognito, in the flesh that veiled his glory. The covering of his flesh, friends, stood between men and women and the glory. It covered and concealed his glory. Men and women were blinded to it, but there were some that were privileged to have insight. We heard this morning, John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, John is saying, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He's not talking about the whole world. He's talking about a select few people who have seen his glory. But the majority saw nothing but flesh. He was veiled in flesh. And friends, Jesus didn't walk around in a brilliant glow of glory. No, he was veiled in flesh. His, his flesh veiled his glory. You might notice some ancient artwork of little baby Jesus and Mary and Joseph and some of the angels or shepherds around. And, and in this artwork, it is the baby that is glowing. But friends, that's not how it was. There's no glow in the manger. There's no glow when the wise men come from the east and worship him with gifts. There's no glow as Jesus is baptized by John. There's no glow as Jesus enters into ministry. There's no glow as he hangs on the cross. No, what mankind sees is simply a baby, a child, a master, a criminal. His glory has been veiled in flesh. Friends, everything we see in this first advent takes on that humble character, a lowly baby. He came as a lowly baby in a lowly manger in the lowly town of Bethlehem, and it all happens in the stable because there was no room for the inn. Get this, the maker of the universe, the creator of everything that was ever made was, was born in a humble stable and placed in a manger. The contrast. Then there's family poverty. He came in poverty. Joseph and Mary couldn't even afford a lamb to sacrifice. And, and the law allowed for those who were in, 
exceptional poverty to simply bring two turtle doves so the one who owns the universe and all the riches of the glory comes in abject poverty. Then there's general obscurity. When he comes, he was unknown. He was unrecognized. Even he's not really truly known by Mary. He's misunderstood by his family. The people in the town where he lives really don't think that he's that big of a deal. He's simply, for number four, a day laborer. We think of him as a lowly carpenter, more likely a bricklayer, but he's a common day laborer. He spent his life doing work with his hands, building things and fixing things and working on things. He shared an ordinary life with the mundane things that we all go through. The same fingers that made the universe and fashioned the stars and put them in place now makes things with a hammer and a chisel. Then there's this public ministry. When he went out into ministry, he faced opposition. He quickly became familiar with envy and hatred and opposition and persecution. Isaiah 53 verse 3 tells us he was despised and rejected of men. And then there's this passion where he's arrested and tried and condemned and nailed to a cross. He he dies in weakness, hanging on that cross while many people mocked him and scorned him, saying, if you are the Son of God, save yourself and come down. And there's this burial, they took his body down and they buried it and they went away to rejoice over their victory. They have gotten rid of this nuisance in Jerusalem. Finally, he's caught. Finally, he's crucified and we can go on. But God is not finished yet. He rises from the tomb and he ultimately comes now to his disciples. You would think, in our human thinking, we would say to ourselves, why doesn't he go and make a public display? But he doesn't. He doesn't. He only shows himself to those who were his chosen witnesses. You thought about that. He doesn't show himself to the soldiers or to Pilate or to King Herod. He doesn't come to the Pharisees and scribes and the Sadducees and say, see, I told you so. He doesn't do that. He only comes to a company of chosen witnesses. See, friends, even in the resurrection of Jesus, there is a veiling, there's a hiding, there's a concealing. Not only how does grace appear, but why did grace appear? What's the purpose of his coming? We're told there in verse 14. In verse 11, he came to bring salvation. It's explained a little bit further for us to redeem us. The idea there is to pay a debt necessary to to cover our sin, to buy our freedom with the cost of sacrifice, to purify for himself a people for his very own, that is to cleanse and establish his own unique people. In other words, salvation means the forgiveness of sins, the reconciliation we can have with God, deliverance from the power of sin, the joy of being welcomed into the family of God, everlasting joy in the presence of God. 
And how is grace received? I read it earlier, Isaiah 53, verse 3. He was despised and rejected. A couple of weeks ago, I had the privilege of going to the Messiah in San Francisco and listening to that wonderful celebration of Christ by a bunch of pagans. But the message rang true. And for 10 minutes, the countertenor got up and says, despised, rejected, despised, rejected, but in such a way that it captivates you to see what happened to this one who is grace. It's mocked ridiculed, scorned, hated, beaten, and crucified. This is the grace of Christmas past. This is the first appearing. This is the first advent. This is the first epiphany. Now we move to the grace of Christmas future. We're jumping ahead a little bit in our text of verse 13. We're told they're waiting for our blessed hope the appearing, there it is, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The glory of Jesus Christ is yet to appear. That's what he's saying. Now, there's a great difference between Christ's first advent and his second. Here's what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. There is no greater contrast in the world of the universe or the whole of human history than the contrast between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. He says, both are personal. He actually comes. Both are visible. Many will see him. Both are bodily. He doesn't return as a ghost or in some kind of spirit form. And what do the two angels tell the disciples? Acts 1, verse 11, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Those are the similarities. But how will he come? Well, in the Gospels, we see flashes of his glory here and there, don't we? He silences the wind and the sea, and it obeys him. He cleanses the leper. He gives sight to the blind. He raises the dead. He feeds the multitude. He changes water into wine. These are all flashes of the glory which is veiled. And those flashes cause the people to ask the question, who is this man? It's throughout the Gospels, isn't it? But there are two particular accounts where his glory has already been revealed. The first one is on the Mount of Transfiguration. You can see that in a number of the Gospels, where Peter, James, and John see Jesus in his glory. We're told there, his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became dazzling white, intensely white, Mark says, more than anyone can bleach them. Have you ever tried to bleach on top of bleach on top of bleach? A number of years ago, I took on 
the task of redoing my deck. And if you've ever been to my house, I've got a big, huge deck in the back. And I needed to paint it. So it involved many days of power washing and hammering nails down and sanding and more sanding and more sanding and then painting and painting and layer after layer of paint. And I was so thrilled when it was done. But there was a problem. The only way you could sit outside on the deck on a sunny day and enjoy the day was if you remembered to wear your glasses, your sunglasses. Why? Because I painted it white. And I remember trying to go outside, even sitting under the umbrella and having to squint with my eyes and they started to water and I had to rush inside. The light and the white was so bright, I couldn't stand it. And then there's the the Saul on the road to Damascus, you know the story. He is in full pursuit mode, chasing down these Christians who are in Damascus, and he's going to get them just like he did in Jerusalem. And while he is on the way to Damascus, suddenly, we're told, a great light from heaven shone around him. And he had the glimpse of the glory of the face of Jesus Christ. Now, friends, Paul wasn't looking at Jesus in the manger. He wasn't looking at at Jesus like the shepherds were looking at him. He wasn't looking at him like the, the wise men saw him. No, he sees him not veiled in flesh, but in his resumed glory. What had been mildly laid aside had now been removed. Unveiled. And the result was that Paul fell on his back, blinded by the light, and he couldn't see for three days. And I would add there, and that's only because God restored his sight. You see, when Jesus comes again, his second coming, he will be coming in unveiled glory. Here's how Jesus describes it to his disciples. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. That's Luke 21, verse 27. When Jesus comes, he will no longer be veiled in flesh. His full glory will be on display. Now the question is, why will he come? Well, he will come as judge to judge. The Apostle Paul describes it this way in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 through 9. Hear this. When the Lord Jesus revealed, is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Little baby Jesus. Little cute, happy, chuckling baby Jesus. See how we have sentimentalized Christmas? 
This is Jesus coming again. And what will Jesus be like when he comes? He will be the king of kings. He'll be the Lord of lords, shining in his majesty and eternal power and riding a white horse of God's power. And he will come to judge the earth. Friends, the only way that we will be able to endure the brightness of his glory when he comes is to be wearing the sunglasses of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ himself will shield us from the harshness of that glory. Friends, at his first coming, Jesus came in great humility and his glory was veiled in flesh. At his second coming, he will come in great power and his glory will be unveiled for all to see. And what does the Lord promise in the book of Revelation? Revelation 1, verse 7, here is what we find. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Every eye. No more veil. He's coming as judge, as king, as ruler. And every eye will see him. All those who despised and rejected him. All those who mourned and scorned and ridiculed him. All those who just went about their day ignoring him. They'll see him. And how will people respond? We continue on in that verse. Even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Wail? When was the last time you wailed? This is a wail of terror. This is a wail of panic. This is a wail of regret. It's a wail of certain judgment. It's a chilling scene, isn't it? Merry Christmas. But you see what Paul's doing here. He wants us to see Christ at his first coming, grace at his first coming, and grace at his second coming. Veiled and unveiled. And he promises us that the things that we are commanded to do, we are able to do by his grace. Who stands behind that? Jesus himself. All the other religions in this world, it's you that has to do the work. You have to pray your rosaries. You have to go on a pilgrimage. You have to do these things. Christianity, it's done. It's accomplished. Grace has done it. But now, out of that grace, out of that salvation, we are called to live. See, this, this present age, in this present age, the humble and glorious great God and Savior comes to us saying, this 
is how I want you to live, and you can do it by my grace. Why? Because the humble Jesus and glorious God has conquered death. He's broken the bondage of sin. And by his grace, he says, you can live for me, not in your own power, but in my power, by my grace, in my power, with my help. And friends, what God commands us to do, he also gives us the grace to do. So there's two things now in this section. Verse 12, let's read verse 12. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. The first thing I want us to know is this. It's a call for us to live a grace-fueled life. When you experience God's unmerited favor in Jesus Christ and are saved, it motivates you to want to please him in everything you do. Now, these are going to be general statements that kind of reach back to what he's already said in verses 2 through 9. We begin with this word training. Grace here. Christ is training us to do some things. It's a word that is used of child training. So it involves things like teaching, but also correcting and disciplining. It is what we call the process of our sanctification that begins with our salvation and ends with our glorification when we will be with him forever. So God calls us by his grace to say no to some things, and God calls us by his grace to say yes to some things. Let's look at, first of all, that grace fuels us to say no to two things. First of all, ungodliness. See, ungodliness refers here to a person who does not reverence God and thus lives by ignoring him. Now, it obviously refers to people who are openly immoral and evil, but it also includes the outwardly nice person who simply has no place for God in his life. So that neighbor you have cuts your grass, picks up your dog's droppings when you don't, you know, they look out for you when you're gone. They're nice people. But they are ungodly people from a biblical sense. The person who has tasted God's grace will say no to such godless living. They will not ignore God. He will be central in what they do. Then worldly passions, this refers to desires that are characteristic of this world system that is opposed to God. Isn't it interesting when things blow up in our media, blow up in our culture? Ask yourself the question, what is happening here? And you're tempted to run after it. Oh, this must be the thing. Open your Bible. What does God say? Is this from the world system, something that is opposed to God, or is this God speaking? And friends, so many times we get swept away by things that are not what God says. They're worldly passions. John describes them as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. They include selfishness, pride, seeking after status and power and greed and lust and living for sinful pleasure rather than finding pleasure in God. 
Grace, however, trains you to say no to these things. Say, no, I'm not. I'm not going to be tainted by that. I'm not going to be drawn by that. I'm not going to be pulled by that. Because you know that God and his grace are sweeter than anything the world can offer. Friends, do you find yourself getting on with life and ignoring God in the process? God's there if I need him, you say. He'll help me out if I'm in a difficulty. But you've already chosen to ignore him. Do you find yourself agreeing with the ideas and practices of the world system and trying to squeeze them into the Bible? If you do, then you need a little Christmas grace slap in the face to get you out of the fog of your wandering heart. So you can get back to saying no to ungodliness and worldly passions. But living a grace-fueled life isn't just about avoiding ungodliness and worldly passions. It isn't just about saying no to sin and getting on with your life. It also says yes to certain things. So in the midst of this present age, we're enabled to live self-controlled lives, upright lives, godly lives, we're told here. The idea of self-control, the focus here, the attention is on yourself, not yielding to the various passions and impulses that this world wants to give us. It has to do with how you control yourself, your own pursuit of holiness, your time in the Word, your, your time of prayer, your sensitivity to sin, your purity. Uprightness, the focus there has to do with others This refers to a life of integrity in your dealing with others. It means conforming to God's standards of conduct that are revealed in his word as it relates to how you relate to others. Patience, honesty, forgiveness, love, hospitality. Godly lives here. The focus is not on yourself so much or others, but the focus is on God. It refers to a life of holiness and devotion to God that begins in your heart. This is stuff that no one else can see. It means living a Godward life, knowing that he examines your heart. Gratitude, worship, obedience, trust. One of the authors, as I was reading this week in preparation, said this, and I think it's so helpful for us. He says, if you live in the way that Paul describes in our text, renouncing ungodliness and worldly passions and living self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the midst of this corrupt age, other Christians will call you a legalist. Many in the world will think that you're weird because you don't strive for the same things that they seek but you will experience the joy of close fellowship with the God who rescued you from sin and judgment. His grace motivates you to live differently in the world and differently than those who profess to know God but deny him by their works. That's Titus chapter 1 and verse 16. Friends, it doesn't matter what other people think. What matters is what God thinks. 
What matters is what grace is teaching you, is training you to do. That's what matters. So first of all, he calls us to live a grace-fueled life. Secondly, he calls us to look for a grace-fueled hope. Friends, because of, our gra- of God's grace, we are anchored in our salvation to the redemption of Jesus Christ accomplished for us on the cross. And because of God's grace, we pursue our sanctification, knowing that we're no longer in bondage to sin and are able to please God. Because of God's grace now, we set our gaze on the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We long to be with him. And that is why we love to sing some Christmas carols, and in particular, the one we began with today, Joy to the World. Did you know, though, that Joy to the World is not really talking about His first coming? It's a song that came out of Psalm 98. But it's a song about His second coming. It's all about the earth receiving her king. It's all about man and creation singing that the Savior reigns. It's about creation being restored. Here stands number three. No more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. Well, how does that happen? Not now. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. In other words, Creation is being restored with the coming of the king. And it's all about the nations finally acknowledging God. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations what? Prove. Do you see? Who I really am. Well, when he comes again, they will see him for who he really is. We look for a grace-fueled hope. Friends, the grace of our salvation, hear this, salvation pushes us on our journey. The grace of our glorification draws us to hope in that second resurrection. We are pushed and we're pulled. Pushed and pulled by the grace of God saying, you can do this by my grace, with my strength, for my glory. And friends, Christmas is a reminder that God calls us to live our lives by God's grace between his first and second advent, between his first and second coming. I want to remind you, as I bring it to a close, of my aim this morning. My aim this morning is that taking time to reflect on Christmas grace would result in three things. It would refresh your memory as to who Christ is, what he has done, and where you fit 
in the whole plan of his redemption. I want you to see, yes, that's right, Jesus came veiled in flesh. Yes, that's right, he comes in glory, unveiled glory, and that same grace fuels me to live for him. Secondly, my aim was that it would rekindle your walk, that it would stoke the embers of your walk with Christ and get the flame burning hot again. Yes, you can get back to pursuing him. Yes, I can make progress in my, in my Christian walk. Yes, I can keep going by his grace. And finally, that it would refresh, or I should say, reorient your worship. You see, we get so captivated, as I said earlier, by the sentimentality of Christmas that we can lose sight as to who Christ really is. He came as a baby, veiled. That he'll come as a king, revealed. And he is worthy of our worship. Lord, help us as we gather around the tree today, as we open up and read the Christmas story, as we celebrate the exchanging of gifts, as we sing carols maybe with our families, even as we watch some goofy movies on TV, that, that behind all that we would see the wonder and the glory and the majesty of who you are. Not just as a little baby, not even as one who is hanging on a cross, and not even one who's seated at the right hand of the Father, but also as the one who will come unveiled, mighty, and powerful. And in doing so, Lord, we would be fueled and strengthened to pick up our Christian walk to pursue it, knowing whom it is that drives us, knowing that his help and his grace is there seeking to, to move us along. Lord, we need some Christmas grace. Wake us up to reorient our heart to you. Rekindle in us, Lord, what you need to for your glory today. We ask in your precious name. Amen.